the attempt to fulfill the law through our own human effort. Of course, we understand reading later Ephesians 2 and in the book of Romans, uh, Romans 4 that God never attempted or intended for the law to bring righteousness. God never meant for the law to bring salvation. Salvation was never by works, but was meant to be by the grace of God through the workings of faith, which is evidenced by our obedience to God's word. So you can't walk in faith without obedience, and you can't be saved without faith. So that first starting point is obedience to the word of God. And so God gave the law to prove unto us, to show us, uh, and to d define sin, to show us what sin was, to prove man's sinfulness without the Holy Ghost, to prove man's need of God's grace, and to eventually point man unto Jesus Christ, who is the only solution for man's struggle and man's sin. So the only way for God to show these things was he had to subject man unto the law, even though man had no power to fulfill the law. So God's people during uh, the period of the law, they were actually under bondage to the law. Galatians 4 would bear this out and use the picture that just as a child is treated like a servant under his tutors and his masters until he reaches maturity, even so were God's people treated like a servant under the bondage of the law or under the teaching of the law. They did not have the power of the Holy Ghost available unto them. And so they had no ability to truly live righteous and to truly live a life that could overcome sin. They were forced to live under the bondage of the law and they had weak sinful flesh. But they were saved by God's grace that was expressed in obedience to the law of the day. That in that day there was a grading curve, if you will, that God understood. These, these people cannot fulfill my law without the Holy Ghost. But they were to show us in the last days who can have the Holy Ghost and live led by the Holy Ghost. They were to teach us. They were to be an example unto us. They had to offer these animal sacrifices continually to atone for their failures. But the mountain of their sin was never remitted. But we are taught that it was only rolled forward. And rolled forward to be a lesson unto us that the best efforts of man can never remit sin. There's nothing you can do to remit your sin, but it's only God's grace that can forgive you and can wipe your past away and can give you the authority and ability to live clean. And so the gospel of Jesus Christ has delivered us from the bondage of the law. That by faith in Christ, we receive the righteousness of Christ without being able to fulfill the law on our own. And so through the Holy Ghost, we have, if you could imagine that if a man could have fulfilled the whole law and the prize was the Holy Ghost or the prize was God's righteousness at the very end. When we are filled with the Holy Ghost, God imputes his righteousness unto us. And so it's as though we had been obedient to every law that God had ever given. God covers us with his righteousness that he lived a life that was free from sin. And so when we are, we repent of our sins, we kill that old man, we are buried in the water, we're risen again a new man, there's a robe of righteousness that covers us that when the Lord looks at us, it looks as though we fulfilled every statute that he'd ever given. It looks as though we've walked our whole life in complete obedience to his word. And so with the power of that robe of righteousness, you now have the ability to choose 
to walk with God or to remove that robe of righteousness and go back to your life of sin. Understand that if you go back to sin, God's robe of righteousness is not going with you. But you have removed that covering from off of your life. But as long as you strive to walk on the highway of holiness, there's an umbrella or a canopy, if you will, of God's forgiveness and God's grace and God's holiness and God's righteousness that is covering you because God has imputed it unto you. And so this is righteousness that the law couldn't impart because we couldn't follow the law. But God justifies us through faith in Christ. And God progressively makes us righteous or sanctifies us. That sanctification is not the work of a moment but of a lifetime. That as we submit ourselves to God's holy ordinances, God continually does the work of sanctification in us. That we should be further and further along the highway to holiness the longer that we live. We sure shouldn't start far along and then as we get older, we get colder and colder and colder and, and we're sliding the wrong direction. We need to be requiring more out of ourselves as we age in Christ and as we grow in Christ. And so we receive the moral law of God in our heart as part of our regenerated nature. That even if you had never heard that it was wrong to kill a man, wrong to commit adultery, wrong to do these things. If you receive the Holy Ghost, then that law is grafted in your heart where there's there's just something, it'll steer you away from some things. You'll, you'll go to pick up some old habit and there'll be something in you that'll say, hey, I just don't feel right doing that. I, I don't feel right saying that. I, there's something telling me I shouldn't live the way I've been living. That's the law of God that's been written in your heart like it said in Ezekiel 36. And so he's saying, Galatians 5, but if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. That this is how we're made free from that law is we're led by the Spirit. And he'd go on to say that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. That there are some great ways you can tell if the Holy Ghost is operational in your life. And only one of them is whether or not you speak in tongues. If you speak in tongues and you're not developing the gifts, there, there's a clog somewhere in the flow of the Holy Ghost in your spirit. you you got to let that river flow and let those fruits be developed because they're the evidence of God's workings in your life so he's saying there's no law against the workings of these things he'd say the law was our schoolmaster Galatians 3 and 24 the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith but after that faith has come we're no longer under a schoolmaster that when faith arrives and we're showing our faith by our obedience to the word, we're made free from that old law of sin and death. And now we have got to follow the spirit, which is a new law, which is a new way, which has ordinances that are there. He fulfilled those old ordinances. And now he's got new ordinances that the man or the woman who is regenerated in Christ has got to follow. And so we're made free from that old law, the old ordinances. Number three, we're freed from the destructive power of the law that was caused by man's abuse of the law. There were many Jews who falsely believed that they could obtain righteousness merely by the works of the law. This was a gross distortion of God's original purpose for the law, which was to show man's inadequacy without the power of the Holy Ghost. 
And so the law, which was meant to be a good thing, actually became harmful because they began to rely on the law for salvation. And in fact, they relied on the law so much that when Christ arrived, they rejected Christ because they had learned to love the law. And so Paul attacks this legalistic thinking in his day in Acts 15 in Romans and Galatians. He refutes this legalistic doctrine that was taught by the Jews. And so the problem was that the law came and man's flesh instantly took the law and made it an instrument to fulfill our own self-righteousness. The law became part of a religious system which fostered man's sense of self-sufficiency. It, it became an instrument to show the greatness of man and how right that man could live and it became party to the most monstrous delusion of all in that man could live apart from God that that man did not need God to live holy and so this system Paul recognized as the enemy of Jesus Christ the law had been turned inside out and rather than being a witness to man's need of being saved it had become a technique that man might use to save himself and so the principle is that the law team with the flesh will always produce sin, most specifically the sin of self-righteousness, and sin will end in death. The law teaches submission to Christ and obedience to the leading of the Spirit, that in short, we're liberated from the condemnation of the law that we might freely serve the law of the Spirit, that it, it's a new law that we walk in. It's a law of grace. It's a law of relationship that there are some things we do not because we're going to be struck dead in a moment or we're going to be stoned in a moment if we don't do it, but because we understand that at the end of the day, we're going to be judged to be righteous or unrighteous. And if we're not walking in ordinance with God's law, we're going to be in trouble because it's only obedient or disobedient. It's only lost or saved. And finally, that fourth section is we are specifically freed from the ceremonial law of the Old Testament, that God used the ceremonial law, blood sacrifices, dietary laws, circumcision, Sabbaths, and feasts, as types and foreshadowings of the truth to eventually be found and fulfilled in Christ and his gospel. And so now we are given the substance or the antitype and we no longer need the shadow which was the type. That there was something that would show that eventually there's going to be a process that you'll understand. God's going to fulfill this process and he's going to keep the covenant going with a new process. There were things that he said I'm going to write my laws in your mind and in your heart. And so Paul would write in Colossians that you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh hath he quickened together with him having forgiven you all trespasses. This is that robe or that covering of righteousness that, that you were uncircumcised. You hadn't obeyed the Old Testament covenant but, but when you obeyed what God had given you, he forgave you every trespass. He covered you. Verse 14 says blotting out the ordinances or the handwriting of ordinances that was against us which was contrary to us or it didn't work in our favor and he took it out of the way and nailed it to the cross. That this ceremonial law, these Old Testament blood sacrifices, this observance of holy days, this, this observance of eating certain things and, and not eating others, he took it and he nailed it to the cross because it was contrary to us. It did not work in our favor. And so because of this, he said, let no man judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of Sabbath days. 
Now the principle here, he go on to uh, more clearly explain this using meat offered to idols. We're going to get into that some in this lesson, some in following lessons. But the principle here is that you've got to make sure you are at least doing the clear law of the spirit and the moral law. We're made free from the ceremonial law, but if there are some that still want to do some extras and follow some pieces of it, don't you judge them for doing it and they don't judge you for not doing it. Let, let every man judge himself according unto the word of God that these things are a shadow of things to come but the body is of Christ. Don't be so obsessed with the shadow that you cannot see the fulfillment which was Jesus Christ. And so the New Testament church refused to impose the Jewish law upon the Gentile Christians. Now we read of some who still obeyed pieces of the law, but that, that uh, ceremonial law was no longer required. But here's the problem. As they were set free from the ceremonial law, in typical human fashion, they were not free, or I should say we as humanity were not free to only, or we were not content to only be free of the ceremonial law, but humanity has tried to use the liberty that God has given them to free themselves from God's moral law as well, to free themselves from God's holiness stipulations as well. We have created a type of lawless Christianity that believes a person should be able to do anything they want and still be saved because of God's grace. There's a phrase that I've heard many more times than I would like to hear. I'd be very content if I never heard it again. But church is teaching that, that grace is, or that this is our response to, I can't even remember the saying. I've already blotted it out of my mind. Help me, Holy Ghost. That grace is when I respond to God's sacrifice with my indifference. I just butchered it, but that's the principle. They're basically saying that grace is when I can be indifferent to what God has done and live any way I want to live, and God's grace just comes and snuggles me up like a warm blanket and pats me on the back and gives me a bottle and tells me everything's going to be okay. Friend, that's not what God's grace does. God's grace... God's great. It's God's mercy that keeps you when you're living in sin. But when you turn, you repent, you make an about face, and you're doing everything you can do to get back to God. It's God's grace that spans the gap between your best efforts and God's holiness, and God pulls you unto him and wraps you up in his righteousness. Indifference is not a part of God's grace. If you're indifferent, you're testing the limits of God's mercy, which will one day run out on the indifferent soul. You better find some convictions and turn around and say, hey, I've got to live the way God wants me to live. And so the lawless Christian will abuse the concept of Christian liberty in order to condone violations of God's holiness principles. They'll abuse God's grace and twist it to say that because of grace, they can do anything they want to do. And because nobody's perfect, they can do anything they want to do. In fact, Jude would write that in the last days, the ungodly will change the grace of God into a license for their own immorality. 
their own lustful heart. And even as they do, Paul would say they'll heap to themselves teachers or false teachers having itching ears. They're, they'll hire people to lie to them and tell them everything's okay. They'll, they'll have teachers that will appeal to the lustful desires of man and they'll promise liberty, but they'll actually be under bondage to sin according to 2 Peter 2. They'll be so confused. They'll think that they're living in accordance with grace, but they're really living under the bondage of sin. And so there are those who believe they can sin because they're not under the law, but under grace. Their attitude is, I can do this because God will forgive me. The writer of Hebrews has said, said that they have trampled the blood of Jesus Christ under their feet. Paul would say, God forbid that you think you can live in sin and be under the covenant of grace. God's law, God's moral law is as binding as it has ever been. And Christian liberty means the freedom to submit to truth, not freedom from truth. God's law will bring you under a servitude to God's grace. It will bring you under servitude to follow God's spirit. And so when you're really liberated, you don't use your liberty to gratify the desires of your flesh. Christian liberty does not give you power or license to disobey God's moral laws. Christian liberty does not eliminate your responsibility to follow God's formula and be part of God's church and have godly authority in your life. And so authority, and understand there's a balance here, but we've all got to have authority in our life. Hebrews 13 and 17 would say, Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they that must give an account that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Now there's no form of godly authority that does not spring forth from the word. When a man is not teaching out of the word, he has no authority for all his authority comes from the word. But we also have to understand that part of walking in this New Testament covenant is we have to apply the word. We have to take principles that are timeless and apply them in our life, in our time, in our culture, in our area, in our church, in our family. We have to understand how to apply these things. And so this is not a new thing, this application. In fact, in Acts 15, the elders are writing unto the church and they're writing of the way that they are going to apply God's law into this current day, into this current culture. And they, they tell them these are the things that we're laying on you. And then they say it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. Now, this is what any godly leader has to do. You can't just say, go do anything you want to do, and we'll just see how it shakes out at the end of the day. That, that's nothing but a hireling who's afraid to draw the line. But neither, neither can a leader draw lines for the sake of control and for the sake of being domineering and being a lord over God's heritage. The motivation for every line has to be the safety of God's people. If there's a line drawn that's not for the safety of God's people, the line should not be drawn. It should be removed. So every principle, every standard should be to keep God's people safe, to teach us how to live holy, and to keep us in right standing with God. Now there are people who will take scripture out of context to justify the abandonment of all moral restraint. They'll take scriptures like Romans 14 and try to show that, that they can do anything they want to do. Paul would say, I know. 
And I'm persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Now before we get into the context of this verse, even just a standalone verse, by the print, if we took this the way that people apply it, it would mean there's nothing wrong with killing somebody. There's nothing wrong with sleeping around out of wedlock. There's, there's nothing wrong with any sort of sin unless you feel like it's a sin. Now, does anybody think that's the truth? Of course it's not the truth. But there, were, there are people that will use that exact same logic to free themselves from any type of holiness standard or holiness living. They'll say, well, if I don't think it's a problem, it's not a problem. But the context of this verse, and you can read it for yourself, shows that Paul was not referring to all activities, but he was referring to non-moral issues. Specifically, he's referring to the eating of certain types of food, which was a big dispute that he was dealing with, this, these types of meat that they could eat or not eat. And in fact, if you read other translations, the NIV uh, translated, translates this as, I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. And so when you go back, we understand the context here is food. He's not saying you can do anything you want to do and it's all okay. Because if we could do anything we want to do and it's all okay, then he's just contradicted his own teaching in Romans 12 and Romans 13. Neither does it mean that all physical things are fit or intended for human consumption. I've heard people say, well, show me the law that says I can't smoke weed. Show me the law, I'd say, show me the law that says you can't do meth while you're at it. It's a principle. Paul didn't intend for us to drink hemlock or we can go take a bath in poison ivy or we can smoke or consume mind-altering substances. There's the principle that we don't take things that alter the way we think, that, that cloud our mind, that we can't follow the direction of the Holy Ghost. When you understand the only way that we can make it to heaven is by following the clear direction and voice of the Holy Ghost that leads our mind and heart, why would you do anything that would cloud your mind and your ability to think? Why would you drink or smoke or consume anything that hurts your ability to think clearly? And so Paul would say, all things are lawful. Unto me, but all things are not expedient. We'll flesh that out more in another lesson. But the context shows he's dealing with non-moral issues. Okay, he's dealing with non-moral issues. He's talking about food. And so neither of these passages can be interpreted to mean that all activities are permissible. If you got the Holy Ghost, just do anything you want to do. And if it doesn't make you feel bad, keep doing it. That's not at all what he's teaching. And so our liberty, again, does not permit us to indulge in fleshly desires. It does not enable us to commit sin or violate God's word. But we find these guidelines for the exercise of Christian liberty, even with respect to non-moral matters. That, that this law will govern us in matters that are sin and in matters that lead to sin. And even in matters that maybe they just consume too much of our time to keep us from being what God wants us to be. There are clear principles. And so the exercise of all Christian liberty should be to the glory of God. It shouldn't be to just whatever you want to do. If, if you're in Christian liberty, the way you exercise that liberty is you live your life for the glory of God. He'd say in 1 Corinthians 10 and 31, whatsoever ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. So what if you started asking this question? Instead of saying, is this a sin that will send me straight to hell? 
What if you said, does this glorify God? Two very different questions. This one will keep you safe and will lead you to heaven. This one, in my opinion, I don't think anybody can be saved asking on every part of their life, will this send me to hell if I do it? Or will it, is this a salvational issue? If that's your question every time, you're going to trip up somewhere. You're, you're trying to tiptoe on the top of that fence. Eventually, you're going to fall off on the wrong side. But, but if you say, does this glorify God? There, there's a buffer that will keep you safe. He's saying Colossians 3 and 17, whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. So whatsoever you do in word or deed, we ought to do all in the name of Jesus for the glory of Jesus. This is Christian liberty. Principle number two, we should avoid anything detrimental to us, whether physically, mentally, or spiritually, even if it is not inherently sinful. 1 Corinthians 6 and 12 again would use that phrase, all things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. It'd be a good thing for everybody to research that phrase and see this for yourself, but there are many commentators that believe that he was using a phrase that they often use, that I can do this, it's not against the law. It's not against the law. I, I can do this. He's, he's writing something that the people of the church in Corinth were using their newfound liberty to believe that they could do anything they want because the law had been fulfilled. But they were not understanding the law of God's grace and the law of holiness. And so he's writing unto them to say, hey, all things are permissible, but everything is not beneficial. I'm big enough to do anything I want to do, but everything doesn't help me get closer to God. And so we avoid things that are detrimental or distracting to us. Also, we regulate our activities so that none of them control us. We're not to allow anything to dominate our will or rob us of too much energy, time, and money that we can't let anything become a priority over God. Okay, now just a, just a simple, simple question. If we're, if we're spending three, four, five, six hours a day playing video games or on social media, whatever, fulfilling our hobbies, and you're praying 30 seconds before you go to bed, I just asked you, is that, is that activity controlling you? Is it, is it keeping you from being able to give a sufficient amount of time to God? I think it'd be pretty clear the answer is yes. And so we avoid things. We don't need a scripture that says it's a sin to do that. If, if it becomes out of balance in our life, then we have taken something that was not inherently sinful, and we've made it a sin for us. And so, and so here's the principle. If you can't have a game system without playing three or four hours a day and not being able to pray, you don't need to have a game system because you've made it a sin. But if there's another one who has a consistent prayer life and they're able to keep a handle on what they do, it's not your job to go say, hey, I got rid of mine. When are you going to get rid of yours? No, you weren't able to control what you were doing. Okay, so there's, there's a balance in these non-sinful issues. We understand we have the ability to take something that's not a sin and to make it a sin in our life. We can't let things interfere in our relationship with God. And number four, and this is a big one, I want to make sure we get this. The Christian is never to exercise their liberty in a way that would harm someone else. Now, this is the toughest bridge to cross, I would say, in all holiness teaching. 
because there are people they can control what they do and because they can they don't want to give up one inch of what they do for the good of someone else but this is a clear biblical principle it's a it's a biblical command by God we are commanded by God to do some extras in our life to make sure we don't cause someone else to stumble I want to read you some scripture on it. 1 Corinthians 8 and 9 says, But take heed, lest by any means or in any way this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to them that are weak. You better make sure that you don't take any, any extras in your liberty that causes someone else to fall. 1 Corinthians 8 and 13, Paul, who has already talked with disgust about the vegetarians, he said the vegetarian's got a weak conscience. But he says, if my meat makes my brother to offend or to stumble, I'll eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. One of the most powerful scriptures in all the word of God. That, that before, he's already said, it's, not, it's completely okay to eat this meat. But if my meat causes my brother here to stumble... I'm going to allow his weakness to infringe upon my liberty that we both might be saved. What? Why would I say, well, man, I can handle it. You better just man up and pray a little more. Oh, no, if it makes him stumble, then it's my responsibility as the stronger one to require more out of myself. First Corinthians 10, I hope y'all are enjoying this. 1 Corinthians 10 says, Give none offense, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God, even as I please all men in all things, not seeking mine own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. He's saying the greatest thing that could come out of this is the salvation of all. And so I'm not seeking my own profit or I'm not seeking to find the greatest amount of things that I can do and still be saved and still be okay. But, but I'm seeking that baseline that causes the most people to be saved. I, I'm trying to find how can we all live holy? What, what's the greatest amount of safety that we can all live in? And so this is where balance it's so important, right? Because we can, make, we can make that law so strong that it causes people to fall out of the church rather than to step in. So we've got to find the right amount where there are some lines that create a, a, an atmosphere where people can live holy and where they're safe from some things and safe from some influences. And when we find that line, it's everybody's responsibility to live according to the line. Even if you think you don't need it. Even, even if you think you could draw yours a little further, when you're part of a church body, it's your responsibility to hold yourself to the same line. That that more might be saved, that you don't confuse somebody when they see what you're doing. And as we go in these lessons, we're going to get into a lot more specifics. But I'm, I'm laying these guidelines and principles here. So he says this in Romans 14. If thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. Destroy him not with thy meat. For whom Christ died. That he's talking about that law of love. That, that if there's something that I'm doing, even if it is not an explicit sin defined in the Bible, if it violates a principle that causes my brother to sin, the problem is with me. I'm destroying him with my actions. 
I don't have the right to just say, man, you better go pray and fast. You better, you better read your word more. Yeah, we all need to pray and fast and read the word more. But, but if I'm performing an action that's making him stumble and fall out of the church, I've got a problem. I, I've got something I'm going to have to answer to God about. And so in Christian love, I should forego my liberty to avoid being a hindrance to my brother. And here's the main principle of this lesson. Love is the primary limitation of Christian liberty. Your love for God and your love for your brother should set some limitations on the way you live your life. That the very basic foundation should be the sin issues. And then on top of that, you should have a mountain of things that you do because of liberty. That, hey, this may not send me to hell, but I don't partake of it because I'm trying to separate myself. I, I'm trying to be an example to my brother. I, I'm trying to live a life of holiness. I, I don't want to confuse my brother in any part of my life. This should affect every area of your life. It should cause you to care how people see you because you want to be a witness unto them. He, he'd say in the next verse, let not your good be evil spoken of. Understand the whole context of this conversation is doing extras that are not required. It's the blessing of the extras. It's, it's the second mile Christian. It's the person who's delivered from asking of every single action will send them to hell. But the whole context is what can I do on top of that to make it easier for those around me to be saved? What can I do to be a better witness and to enhance my life? In Romans 14, he'd say, for meat, destroy not the work of God. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eateth with offense. I want to make sure you get this verse. That he, he's specifically saying, over non-salvational issues... Don't let your refusal to obey just a church standard or church principle destroy the work of God. Live in unity and harmony. Find a line and live within it. Because it's evil for you to take what before was not salvational, but because you refuse to require some extras out of yourself, now you've made it salvational for somebody else and you've offended your brother and you caused them to stumble. He's saying don't destroy the work of God because you can't obey something so simple. It's amazing the people that claim to love God so much and they only want to do the bare minimum. They don't want to do one thing that, that God has not appeared unto them by the word and say, you have to do this or you'll be saved. They don't want to examine God's desires and the spirit of God's book. They, they don't want to hear about a spirit of modesty that would lead us to be modest in all areas of our life, not just in exterior appearance, but, but a modest heart. That, that that's how an exterior modesty, it flows out from a modest heart. And so it's possible. It's talking about things that they're morally neutral. By themselves, they are not sinful and they're not holy. They're morally neutral. But their effect on the people around us can cause them to become a sin because one thing can be detrimental to my brother and not detrimental for me. But if I love my brother, I'll require a little more out of myself to keep him safe. We, we've got to understand people's backgrounds before conversion. We need to know their weaknesses. We need to love them that we don't, enough that we don't put them in positions that would cause them to fall. And so we also need to be careful to follow our own convictions 
even when everybody else may not follow the exact convictions that we have. You should have some personal convictions in your life that maybe everybody else doesn't obey, but you require more out of yourself than anybody else. And so then don't turn around and say, well, hey, I do this, so that means you have to do it. No, we ought to all be striving to be holy as unto the Lord, finding ways that we can be holy unto him, some extras we can require out of ourselves. It's the legalist who has to place everything into one of two categories. Either it's sin or I can do as much of it as I want. That's not the way this works. We have to understand there are some things that are just not conducive to Christian living. They don't help us. We got to lay aside the sin. And he also said lay aside the weight. Lay aside any distraction. Lay aside anything that should cause you to not follow Christ in the way you should. And so there are places, many places where the Bible will give a general principle but not give a detailed instruction for our culture because the principle is applicable in every culture. And so, for instance, 1 Corinthians 11 clearly teaches that a man should have short hair, but it doesn't say how short. It doesn't say at the shoulder. It doesn't say at the waist. It, doesn't, it does not say. And so we interpret it and apply it as just say that, hey, we're going to keep a clean-cut look because the word says if a man has long hair, it is a shame unto him. That's the same word teaches that women should dress modestly but does not prescribe exact guidelines for what God considers to be modest. And so we have to examine the book to receive the spirit of modesty, and that inner spirit of modesty will create an exterior spirit of modesty. And so when you understand the need for the principle, it shouldn't be a, it shouldn't be a problem when we go through and draw lines and say, hey, for the sake of unity and conformity and identity, we've got to apply this principle. And the only way to apply it without confusing those who would come in is that we've got to have some lines. And our lines, I want to make sure we get this, our lines don't, to ha don't have to become everybody else's lines. Who's to say that every line that I've drawn is perfect? I'll tell you, it's likely not. I'm just doing the best I can. I'll, I'll tell you, I don't have it all figured out. But each pastor has to draw some lines for their church, and you're not responsible to judge other churches by the lines in your church. Don't, don't think that everybody's lost if they don't do exactly what you do and exactly what we teach. Now, we're not referring to doctrine here. Doctrine is clear. Doctrine is salvific. But we have to set lines in these non-clear salvational issues. We have to have some applications. I've got to answer to God for this church. It's my responsibility to set lines. If there are not lines, then God's church becomes chaotic and ceases to be God's church because God is a God of order and God's people are to be people that walk in unity. And if we all had the spirit of the book of Judges and we all did what was right in our own eyes, we'd have, we had 400 people, we'd have four different sets of guidelines because nobody can agree on everything. But what we can agree is that when we see the principle of the book, we we need to just require some things of ourselves and say, hey, I'm just going to do this for the sake of God's church, for the sake of identity, for the sake of walking in holiness before the Lord, for the sake of not confusing my brother and causing them to stumble. If you adopt a mindset of only doing the bare minimum of what's required, then it's you that's become the legalist because the legalist only wants to do what's according to the rules. The person who is in relationship can go beyond 
the rules. The person who's in relationship says, hey, I'm going to do anything I can to get closer to God. We got to know how to apply these things. I'm going to have to skip through some things for the sake of time. But again, every church don't have to do things the way we do them. If we think we got every right answer, then we're in trouble. We got to continually judge everything we do by this word of God. We got to do the best we can to allow the word and the spirit to provoke us to live a holy life, to draw some lines in our life. And when we have real relationship, real relationship with God will give us strength not to live free from standards. It will give us strength to keep clear standards and guidelines without falling into the other ditch and taking a legalistic approach and being too harsh or becoming inconsistent. The Holy Ghost will keep us on that straight and narrow, walking in liberty and walking in holiness and walking in strength. We're taught by the word that a wise person appreciates counsel. They appreciate instruction. Proverbs 11, Proverbs 13, Proverbs 17. The wise person, they even appreciate reproof. I've seen a lot of people, nobody can instruct them. Nobody can give them any form of reproof. They, they cannot receive any kind of correction. Why? Because they're not walking in the law of liberty. The law of liberty gives you the ability to be corrected. The law of liberty warns you of the danger of living outside the fence and living with no standards in your life. The, the law of liberty will teach you the importance of spiritual authority and guidelines. The law of liberty will show you that the holiness lifestyle, it makes sense. Our soul is more precious than all the riches of the world. Why in the world would you not want some guidelines to keep your soul safe? When you got the Holy Ghost, there are standards that will spring forth out of your relationship with God. But you got to have the relationship. That's why when someone comes into the church, we don't start throwing all the rules or the standards at them. We try to lead them into relationship. You, they can't last on a rule book. They can only last on a relationship. And, and when they love God and understand the way God loves them, then they will feel that need. Their response will be, hey, I'm going to walk in a lifestyle of holiness. So Christian liberty, it was written, is often perversely interpreted as a cloak for the lust of men that they may licentiously abuse the good gifts of God. And so our life is to be characterized by liberty. Through the gospel, through the Holy Ghost, we receive liberty from sin. We receive, we receive the power to walk according to God's holy law. And so I'm going to give you four questions before we close. Here, here are some questions to help you walk in true liberty. Number one, can I glorify God in this activity? Can I glorify God in this activity? Number two, is this activity detrimental to me physically mentally or spiritually does it hurt my ability to follow God does it hurt my ability to hear the voice of God number three can this activity gain mastery over me and bring me under its control now if you don't have time to pray or be faithful to church something's got you under its control now, you need to find out what it is, but something has got you, even if you don't feel controlled, you're under that control because you're not following the law of God. And number four, is this activity a stumbling block to another believer or to an unbeliever? 
Can anybody stumble if they saw me doing what I'm doing? Would it confuse anybody? Would it be inconsistent? Would I be showing an inconsistency in what I claim to believe? So these questions go beyond what is sinful or non-sinful. And they apply to things that are morally neutral or innocent by themselves. They are to be applied to every potential activity. That if the Bible condemns a practice either specifically or in principle, then we're to obey what the Bible teaches. Does that sound good to everybody? Can we give that a shot? Let's get, let's get delivered from making everything a salvational issue. If, if everything has to be salvational, there's no relationship. Let's stand across the house. Musicians, you can come. So Christian liberty will lead you to a life of greater holiness and not lesser holiness. It will enable you to, by your choice, voluntarily submit to the will of God. You've been liberated from the bondage of sin and to the law. And you freely choose that now I'm going to choose to obey the word of God. You need to know it's going to take a made-up mind to live for God in this age. It's going to take strong convictions to stand. There, there are so many things coming against us. We cannot legislate righteousness. We're going to draw as many lines as we can, but if you don't learn to discern between the clean and the unclean, you're not going to make it. If your goal is to do everything you can get away with, you're not going to make it. But if you'll learn to have some convictions and stand strong, then God will lead you to walk in liberty. Galatians 5 and 1 would say, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty. Everybody say, the liberty. Wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. That we're to walk in the liberty of Christ. Not our own version of what we've decided liberty is. We're to walk in the liberty of Christ that God has called us unto. And so I would tell you in closing, liberty is not the right to do anything you want. For being a Christian is not about rights, but it's about relationship. And neither is liberty the ability to do anything you want. Because being a Christian is not about your self-satisfaction, but it's about your salvation. It's not about what pleases your flesh. It's about what strengthens your spirit. Our world is so hung up on rights. It's my right to do this. It's my right to do that. The Christian should take the word right and replace it with responsibility. That you've got a responsibility to God and to your brothers to allow the law of God's love to govern your liberty in Christ. That the limitations of liberty are the love of God. They're the love for the people around you. They, they'll cause you to put guardrails on your walk with God because how could I offend God? And how could I offend my brother simply because I refuse to let go of some things in my own lifestyle? And he say, brethren, you have been called unto liberty. Only use not your liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. The Holy Ghost wants to call some people unto liberty today. It'll mean you require more of yourself than you've ever required. You walk in more holiness than you've ever walked. And you find liberty like you have never known. This altar is open for anybody who'd like to come pray. God wants to help some people tonight. God wants to set you free from your own desires. God wants to give you power to walk after Him in righteousness and holiness. God wants to give you strength 
to require some extras out of yourself to become someone that strengthens the brethren to become someone that's a help unto the church don't don't be a stumbling block unto those around you don't don't demand to do everything you feel like you can handle but say god if it hurts my brother if it confuses my brother lord i'll be what you want me to be Come on, everybody praying across the house. Everybody praying across the house.